Welcome to the Wildlife Health Talks. This is the 17th episode introducing WDA members and their amazing work all over the world. Today, I'm chatting with a PhD student with a vision, who has already been a great asset to the WDA student community. Joy Flowers has created the first WDA chapter at her previous university, Virginia Tech, and now she has become the founding mother and current president of the very first North America-wide WDA student chapter called Canusa. Joy is in the first year of her PhD at Pennsylvania State University, and in her PhD, Joyce studies the impact of deforestation on Ebola virus spillover. Get ready for our chat on WDA student activities and Ebola spillovers. Welcome to the show, Joy. Happy to be here, Kat. Joy, when did you join the WDA? Yeah, let's see. So I joined the WDA in the spring of 2019. That was when I was a sophomore in college. And how did you hear about the WDA at all? Yeah, so I had an advisor back in uh, my sophomore year, Dr. Luis Escobar, who is an active member of the WDA. Um, and he suggested that I create a student chapter after I had mentioned that the Virginia Tech, my undergraduate un university, didn't have any chapters or um, clubs related to wildlife health. Um, so creating that really filled that niche. And I've stayed connected to the WDA ever since that. What's your favorite WDA-related experience since you joined? I would have to say my favorite experience is probably going to the international conference and learning from so many different people with not only different professional and research backgrounds, but different cultural backgrounds as well. You really don't get that just talking with people at your own in institution. You're the founding mother and the first president of Canusa. Tell us a bit more about what is Canusa and why do you think we need it? Yeah, so the main goal of Canusa is to help build a team of individuals passionate about wildlife health from all over North America. Um, up until this point, North American chapters have really worked independently. There hasn't been a lot of communication, but now with this chapter, we'll be able to unite everyone through the planning of events within North America. So planning uh, of these events includes the North American workshop, um, which is like a major thing that we're hoping to, to have moving forward. So this workshop is going to be the opportunity where students will be able to team build through learning wildlife field techniques. Yeah, awesome. That's very exciting. And for anyone who hasn't noticed, Canusa, right, obviously made out of Canada and <laughs> the US, just pointing it out. What do you think is the general value for um, students to join the WDA? What do they get out of it? What do you get out of it? Hmm. I would say the most valuable part of joining this chapter probably would be building that network of regional colleagues, which really gives them access to research collaborators, future job opportunities, and friends that you can just nerd out with um, about wildlife health. I love that. That is definitely one of my favorite parts, um, the nerding out together. If we have students in the audience now who would like to get involved with Canusa and its activities, what can they do? Yeah. So if someone's interested in getting involved, either as a mem member or a potential officer in the future, they can contact me at my email address or our new faculty advisor, Marianti. 
For your PhD research, you study the impact of deforestation on the risk of Ebola spillovers in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I feel like we haven't really heard much about Ebola on the news for some time. So let's chat some Ebola basics. What kind of virus is Ebola? Ebola is a negative strand RNA virus, and it's within the family Phyloviridae. So this is the same family that uh, Marburg virus comes from. What are usually the symptoms when uh, people get infected with Ebola? So Ebola causes hemorrhagic fever disease. And the symptoms that are commonly associated with this include fever, headache, muscle pain. And later a person might experience something more severe, like internal bleeding, resulting in vomiting or coughing up blood. I, f I find it interesting. Most people would have that um, image when you ask them, what does Ebola do? They would probably think of the hemorrhagic fever aspect first. And although I feel like it's really important to point out that when the disease starts, then the symptoms are actually quite general. And from the symptoms, it's really hard to tell, I guess, that this is specifically Ebola now. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So in some of the earlier cases before people were aware about Ebola virus, it was commonly mistaken as malaria. I feel like Ebola is such a good example how sometimes the media can paint a picture of a disease that can be really threatening to people, like imagining a patient who's bleeding out of all orifices, basically. But it's just important to point out that this is not necessarily the case with all patients or not even with the majority of patients, right? Yeah, definitely. So it's very rare to see that. Even though it's called a hemorrhagic fever disease, those symptoms are not always present. How is Ebola spread from one person to another? So Ebola is spread through exposure to body fluids such as blood or semen. Um, commonly, this is through secretions during active infection or shortly after death. However, interestingly, Ebola can also be spread by uh, males through sexual transmission after they recover from infection. So this is something people need to keep uh, mind after they're infected and recovered. Are there any groups in the population that are more commonly at risk to get infected? Yeah, so generally speaking, those without access to proper health care are the most at risk for fatality. However, the ones that are most at risk for getting infected are healthcare workers and hunters and consumers of wild meat. What is the usual course of treatment for someone with Ebola? So treatment of Ebola right now is uh, primarily through supportive care. That includes um, fluids and electrolytes being given to the patients. Um, however, vaccines have been made. Uh, the, I think it was approved in 2019. Um, and this vaccine is only uh, to be used for the Zaire strain of Ebola virus. What was the very first case of Ebola that was described? That case was in 1976 in the Equator region of the Democratic Republic of the uh, Congo in Central Africa. Um, so the Democratic Republic of the Congo was previously known as Zaire, um, which is why the Zaire strain is named the way it is. This was the first documented case, but it's likely that outbreaks and spillover events of Ebola occurred way before this period, but they were just left un unidentified or misidentified as uh, malaria. Joy, remind us, what is usually the fatality rate of Ebola? 
So the Ebola fatality rate can really vary depending on the strain. For the Zaire Ebola virus strain, that can be anywhere from 40 to 90%, give or take. However, there are other strains, such as the Reston Ebola virus strain, where it is asymptomatic infection in people. And so because of that, it has no fatality at all. And I would assume it probably depends on the supportive treatment the patients get or not, right? Yes, absolutely. Supportive treatment is critical because some people don't have access to that supportive health care. The fatality rate that they experience is a lot higher. We know for a few years by now that Ebola is a zoonosis. What animals can Ebola be found in in general? Ebola has been found in bats, primates, and doikers, uh, which are a type of ungulate. Um, all of these have been associated with spillover, or in other words, a cross-species transmission event. Uh, bats, however, are believed to be the reservoir in this disease system. So that means that they're believed to be the ones that maintain the Ebola virus within, within an area, within their habitats. However, to this day, a live Ebola virus still has not been isolated from a bat, so it, it's still kind of a mystery, although most evidence suggests probably bats. Yeah, that does fascinate me that it is still a bit of a mystery, right? Like you would think so much time and effort and research has been invested and it still hasn't been found. Yeah, it's, it's a mystery. It's a little bit disappointing, but I think people are still continuing to work on those surveillance efforts. So hopefully we find something. Where do we mostly see outbreaks when they happen? Yeah, so there have been some anomalies. So the spillover event back in 2013 in Western Africa, that was sort of an anomaly. But outbreaks associated with the Zaire strain of Ebola virus, those most commonly occur within the Congo Basin region of Central Africa. And you mentioned the Zaire strain of the Ebola virus. Are there other strains that can be spread to people? There are several strains of Ebola virus. Most of the ones we know are strains that cause infection in people. I mentioned the most deadly one, which is the Zaire strain, which can have the fatality rate of up to 90%. And then the Rustin Ebola virus, again, exhibits no signs of disease. If the Rustin Ebola virus has no noticeable signs of disease, how were we able to discover it then? The story behind the Reston Ebola virus discovery is really interesting. So back in 19, 1989, the virus was discovered in crab eating macaques within a lab in Reston, Virginia, which actually happens to be close to my hometown. The macaques were shipped to a lab from the Philippines for quarantine um, before they were going to be further used for, for lab usage. The macaques that were brought over, they got incredibly sick from a hemorrhagic fever, um, it was found that the outbreak was caused by simian hemorrhagic fever virus. Um, however, through further testing, they found that an Ebola virus strain was associated as well. After they looked into it a little bit more, they found that three of the workers in the facility at that lab were found to have antibodies for this strain of Ebola virus, which happened to be the rest of Ebola virus but they did not have any noticeable signs of infection. Through this event and others where the Reston strain was found, a lot of the evidence suggests that this virus, even though it's closely related to the Zaire strain and other Ebola strains, has low pathogenicity in humans. So to this day, they still are not really sure why this particular strain resulted in asymptomatic infection in humans while others don't. 
this sounds like a really worst case scenario for everyone working in a lab with animals. Imagine that those macaques are coming over and turn out to be really sick with scary looking symptoms like a hemorrhagic fever. It sounds like it was just so lucky in this worst case scenario that the strain turned out not problematic for humans. Otherwise, that would have been horrible. Yeah, it's really interesting. It could have been a very horrible situation. They just happened to be lucky that it wasn't something more severe. Until recently, Ebola outbreaks or spillovers were on the news fairly frequently. There's something in the nature of this virus, like the hemorrhagic fever that grips us and is really frightening. But in recent years, the news on Ebola have really gotten quiet and this might have a lot to do with COVID taking over the spotlight. That's why I'm really interested. What are the current trends for Ebola spillovers at the moment or in in recent years? Yeah, back in 2013, there was this large outbreak that began in West Africa, and that outbreak eventually crossed continental borders. Because of that, that outbreak made global news, so everybody heard about it. However, since then, there have been regular outbreaks, but the case numbers have been a little smaller. It remained a little more local, so those outbreaks didn't really make the news, especially with the the focus on COVID in recent years. The most recent believed spillover based on genetics was in 2022, so not too long ago. But can we say, is it common to have smaller local outbreaks every now and then, every few years, which might not make the international news? Yeah, so there were several up until... So there have been several smaller outbreaks. Some are just about five people, 100 people. It's rare that the outbreaks get as large as the Western African outbreak. And part of the reason for that is because there are a lot of surveillance efforts going on now. And the regions that are most commonly afflicted, the doctors are better prepared for it. The issue with the Western African outbreak was that It hadn't occurred there before. And because it hadn't occurred there before, they were not very prepared to address it. They didn't know what they were dealing with. And so in many of the cases, the outbreaks end up being pretty small. In your PhD thesis, you investigate the impact of deforestation on the risk of Ebola spillover events. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your work? What's your technique and what have you found so far? Yeah. So in short, to spare you the nitty gritty details of all of the computational stuff I do, I create computational models to determine the role of land cover change on Ebola virus spillover. The idea behind this is that as more natural habitat is lost to human caused deforestation, people will have more opportunities to interact with these wild animals. Specifically for my work, I have to determine what patterns of deforestation are most commonly associated with Ebola spillover. For example, one thing that I'm trying to look at is, is there a type of cropland, which is the most common type of deforestation in that area? Is there a type of cropland that's more commonly associated with Ebola spillover? So are cropland areas that grow fleshy fruiting crops more commonly associated with spillover because of their importance for fruit-eating animals like fruit-eating bats, stoikers, and non-human primates? I want to point out here that you briefly mentioned it. So all your work is computational. So you do a lot of modeling. Do you think you will be able to go into the field at some point during your PhD? 
Yeah, so you're right. Most of my work is computational, so I don't inherently have any field work attached to my work. However, it's one thing to read about a study area, uh, watch videos, and even just talk with people over the internet, but it's a completely different thing to go to the community and have that intimate understanding of the community. And you really don't get that from just doing the computational work. So my advisor has talked to me about going over to the Democratic Republic of the Congo so that we can help the Ministry of Health there um, and see what work they need um, help with. And in the process, I'll get a better understanding of the environment and the community and the people there. So I will have that opportunity to go out into the field. But again, it's not inherently attached to my computational work. Thanks so much, Joy, for telling us your story about your research and sharing your work for the WDA student community. Yeah, I'm happy to share my passions with everybody. Thanks for listening to the Wildlife Health Talks. We will be back with a new story in two weeks. Bye for now.